I think it's important to note that everybody's an influencer to a certain extent. Maybe you don't intend to be an influencer, but if you have people who are connected with you in real life, on social media, wherever the case might be, and you give them recommendations, you give them ideas, you give them suggestions, you're influencing them. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Welcome back to Social Confos. I'm your host, Diego, with, together with Chanduk. Chanduk, how's it going? It's going, it's going quite well, actually. I'm, I'm, I'm in a much better place than I was two weeks ago. So uh, from my side, I'm, I'm glad to be back. You are physically in another place two weeks ago. Yeah, yeah, that, that as well. Good, good point. Good point. But we're here for episode 111, so it's kind of a special episode. Well, one episode. And we do have a special guest. So I was thinking of the traditional way to introduce and then go and talk about a CV. He's a award. I do have to say he's an award-winning blogger, so I think that's, that's interesting. We definitely have to jump into that one. He is the person who influences the influencers. People joke about that a lot with me. But I think when it comes to being an online influencer, especially being a business-to-business online influencer, I think our guest today is one of the biggest influencers that influences influencers in, in the online marketing space. So I think that's, for me, the proper due to, to the proper respect to introduce him that way. And then the last thing I want to say is that most of the time when you meet people that you look up to, people that are like seasoned, award-winning professionals in their field, it's always hard to approach approach, approach them. And then I think it was Doreen actually who said to me like, hey, no, you can just approach him. He's a really, really open, open, nice guy. And I was like, really? And she was like, yeah, just go ahead. Just walk up to him and just say hi and have a conversation. And she was right. Mike is, I think, one of of the easiest people to interact with who will just have a conversation with you. And, and because probably of his skills and the field that he works in, finds a very easy way to, for you to approach him and talk about stuff that you're interested in. And of course, those things being mainly online marketing, blogging, social media, and any form of ambassador program, I think, if you ever want to consider starting an ambassador program, even if it's just a free video of Mike Alton that you're able to find online, I think that would be the, the perfect place to start. So without further ado, welcome, Mike Alton. Welcome <laughs> to Social Convos. <laughs> welcome Thank to Social you. Convos, Mike. And Thanks so much. That was great. Shanluk just gave an amazing introduction, and I tried to keep track of it. Influencers, influencer. But before going to the influencers, influencer, you've been influenced yourself. And it's a tradition here in Suriname when basically you, you bring your partner or you meet someone new. The first or traditionally the first question is, who's your mom? Who's your dad? So Mike, to you, who's your mother and who's your father? And how have they influenced you? So 
Yeah, this is not a typical American question. So yeah, I'm certainly not used to answering this in any kind of a public setting. My dad is an attorney and I think what he probably instilled in me the most was an appreciation for history, which is funny because as a child, I did not like history. And by history, I mean, we would go on trips as a family and he would make it a point to stop at historical locations all throughout the Eastern United States. These are like civil war monuments and battles. And I did not want to do that at all. I thought it was boring. I'm like, why are we looking at the oldest covered bridge in North Carolina? Who cares? But later on in life, that ended up being a really interesting perspective for me. And it's something that I, I use to this day as a self-appointed historian of social media. But my mother, on the other hand, she was a guidance counselor and a teacher. And I think that's really what she instilled in me the most is this understanding and appreciation of how to teach and why it's important to teach other people. And that's something, again, that I'm doing every single day, whether it's all the things you listed or how to appreciate Star Trek and Star Wars. That's what I do. So it's interesting that you mentioned the history part because I also hated history and my mom is an official <laughs> artist. So she took me to all the museums. And now I actually, with my daughter, I do, I do their history, her history lessons. We go over them. So if there's one subject in school that she actually studies with me, it's actually history. And I'm like, wait, how, how did, how did that happen? Yeah. So, so the reason why we bring this question up is we get a lot, like, especially in, in developing countries, in the Latin American countries, it's always, oh, you have to become a doctor. So you have to study medicine, you have to study economics. And you have to study law. And of course, the things you are doing now, I think back at the time when you had to decide whether or not to study and what to study, those jobs didn't exist. So, so how Wait, are you calling me old? No, no. I, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I'm old then as well because they didn't exist when I was. <laughs> But, but to give people a perspective, because how long have you been in the online space? Yeah, I started working in online media early 2000s. And back then it was purely websites. And I transitioned to digital marketing, specifically social media in 2010, 2011 is when I started my blog, The Social Media Hat. So I've been in the digital marketing and online marketing and social media space since then. So pretty much since the beginning. But to your point, I graduated high school in 1992. There was no social media back then. Most of what we're using today in terms of apps and the internet. The World Wide Web wasn't publicly available for the world. Probably in, in, in the US, there was some kind of internet. Right? Yeah, there was something called yeah. DARPAnet back then. Yeah, It was while I was at Ohio State that the internet really launched in the early 90s with CompuServe and AOL and those kinds of things. So I was into that back then in college. But yeah, to your point, when I was getting ready to graduate high school, there was no plan. There was no conversation between me and my parents about me potentially doing what I'm doing today, going into marketing and teaching and speaking and, and those kinds of things. I went to college to be a musician. Something very different. So hold on, because we're, we're talking, <laughs> we want to go to the blogging part, but Let's quickly talk about how, how that interaction goes between the, the, the storytelling and words 
and the storytelling and music. So what's, what's still there from, from the era of wanting to become a musician? Oh, interesting. Not much, I don't think. I haven't thought about it from that perspective, but when I got to Ohio State, which is a huge college, for those who aren't familiar, it's, it's 80,000 students in the middle of Ohio. And I joined their music program and immediately was just bombarded with this insane level of competition, which stripped all the joy and fun out of music for me. So I lasted one quarter on, on music, and then I transitioned to political science and history, and that was pretty much the rest of my career in college. But today, I don't play professionally. I don't even play for other people. I do still play for fun, and that's really all it is for me. It's, it's fun. It's, a, it's an outlet. The end of the evening, I'll sit down at the piano or I'll play my saxophone for fun. So, no, I, I do want to, because you, you said political science and history. So in the end, mm. your dad kind of won, won the battle a little bit. and you A started, little bit, yeah. yeah. Also, you just mentioned, like, you know the history of the internet quite well. Mm. It's clear on the back of your head. For you personally, when you look back at the evolution of the 90s internet versus the 2000s internet versus the 2010 internet, what would you describe as the central themes of those of those decades? Like, if if we would look back in history, would we the nineties? What if we would compare the nineties against the two thousand to the two thousand and tens? What would be for you considered the main building blocks of those decades? The nineties did have some forms of networking. You had communities. You had something called mucks and muds, which are multi-user dimensions. This is very rudimentary ability for people to connect with each other. And because it was so rudimentary, the relationships that you built back then were still very shallow. You might know somebody's username because you saw them in an AOL chat room or an ICP room, but it was unusual for you to form a true personal relationship with somebody back then. So you fast forward to today, 20, 30 years, I think that's one of the major changes that we would be able to identify is that it's so much easier today to develop true personal relationships with other individuals that technically the entire relationship is digital. You've never necessarily had any face-to-face, -face, any real connection. It's not somebody that you knew growing up in your neighborhood. It's somebody that you met online, you only know online, but because we have all these tools of video and audio and images and instant connectivity, you can create a very real relationship. And that allows a, a much greater degree of connectivity and a much wider bit of connectivity, right? I mean, the three of us are having this conversation. I'm in the middle of the United States. You, North America, you guys in the middle of South America. We did get to meet in person a few times. You, know, you and I, Jean-Luc, we've met, I think, three times, if I'm not mistaken. But many of the people I talk to, many people that I have on my show, Never met them. And we just have these virtual relationships and they're very real. You just mentioned through personal relationship. Like, what does that mean exactly? I, I don't want to jump too far ahead in the future because you, you already mentioned, you know, this increased connectivity helps build that. But if you had to distill it down fundamentally, like what's a true personal relationship if you just remove the, the digital and then as we evolve, how we we're bridging that digitally. To me, it's about 
two or more people who genuinely care about each other at a personal level. It's not a superficial where you're a follower, you're a connection of mine on LinkedIn, and I might see you commenting on my posts or I might comment on your, some, some of your posts, but I don't know anything about you personally outside of what we post that I wouldn't say is not a, a true personal relationship. Or B, it's someone that there's a professional relationship and that's where it ends, right? I might interview somebody for my podcast. That doesn't make us friends. That doesn't mean we have a true personal relationship. But once you get to know somebody and you have that genuine feeling of interest and empathy and you care about them and they care about you, hey, that's, that's a friendship, even if you haven't met them in person. And is this like goes both ways? Because something that's really prevalent now, especially with you know, online personalities, influencers, streamers, is they have a huge following, like a huge following. And then you create a sort of like the audience kind of knows them, but doesn't know them. And I, I think the, the term is a parasocial relationship. So how, how do you distinguish that from what you just described there? That's a great question and, and is a problem when it comes to influencers and influencer marketing, particularly B2C influencers. And, and we may talk about the differences more in a little bit, but what we're talking about here is an individual, an individual who might have millions of followers. They can't possibly form personal relationships with all of them. In fact, I'll, I'll be honest, one of my pet peeves is when somebody in that kind of a position says to their followers, I love you. And I think, you're lying. You could not possibly love us. You don't know us. We're a number to you. Don't say things like, oh, I love you all. Good morning. I love you. You can't possibly. The love doesn't exist there, at least not in my definition. So it's not possible for an individual to have relationships that have scaled to that point. And the other fallacy that happens in these kinds of situations is the follower they follow the influencer and they see so much that the influencer reveals about their personal life. They feel like they know the influencer personally. They feel as though there's a personal connection to them. And that too is not real because it's not both ways. It's just one way. You might know a lot about me. You might see me on video. And one of the powers and dangers with video is if I'm looking at the camera, I'm looking at you. And if you're looking at me, I can't see you, but you can see me. And you may feel as though we have eye contact and you may feel as though I'm speaking into your soul right now, but I'm not. I'm not really. I'm looking at my computer screen. I'm looking at my camera. I don't know who's looking at me other than, you know, these two gentlemen that I'm speaking to on the, on the call, right? But for those of you listening to this, I can't see you. So there isn't a two-way connection that happens there. But video on the age of the internet creates the illusion that we have a two-way connection. And again, if I'm sharing personal things about me, that might make you feel as though, wow, we're bosom buddies because Mike just shared with me this deep, dark secret from his childhood. And now only me and the other 75,000 people listening know about that particular thing. So that's, that's the difference to me. It's, it's, not, it's not real friendship. So how, how do we go from here? Because one of the things that we often discuss like with, within our friends and the people that we work with is like from a 
social media marketing perspective, we kind of like this, these kind of developments, like enables us to reach a much broader audience. But then from a, I'm a social scientist. So from a social science perspective, it's like, wait, is, is this really a good thing for our, for our society? And then the question becomes, but if it isn't a good thing, you, you can't kind of, you can't stop it. So basically, should we just evolve and evolve along with it? Or are there some kind of social constructs that we should consider to make sure that we kind of don't feel like we, in some cases, it almost feels like scamming, for instance, that you ask your subscribers for something or your followers for something while you actually don't really personally know them, but they do feel like they personally know you. So they would invest anything, even money into what you're doing. Yeah. What you're really talking about is the classic problem that human beings have with technology. We invent amazing things and it takes a long time for our society to catch up with the reality of what's been invented and the repercussions there. Take legislators, for instance. You've got gentlemen here in the United States. We have a congressional system and people that go to Congress are typically lifelong lawyers who've been politicians most of their lives. That's the stereotype and it's, it's mostly true. So when somebody like Mark Zuckerberg goes to Congress and testifies in front of congressmen, they don't understand Facebook. They don't understand how Facebook makes money and they ask what we think are asinine questions. What's your business model? And Mark replies, I sell advertising. That should be obvious, but it's not obvious to the congressman. And I don't say this necessarily to put them down, but to illustrate that it takes them as an institution many, many years to really understand and fathom what a particular piece of technology or a movement of technology like social media has had and done to our society and how they need to respond and react in exchange. So we're talking about influencer marketing. We're talking about the dangers of how some influencers can share so much about their personal life that they can make their followers feel as though they have a one-on-one -on -one personal relationship with the influencer, even though they don't. And that's dangerous because sometimes that can cause people to do things that they shouldn't do. We've seen stories of influencers being attacked, being stalked, and then the reverse is just true, which, which you just kind of suggested, Jean-Luc, which is that some influencers can take advantage of that, right? And put out calls for, you know, they can start a GoFundMe because now they need a new kidney and they're going to raise $10 million in 10 minutes because their followers feel an obligation due to that personal connection with the influencer, which was false from the start. So these are issues that technically we're struggling with as a society today. We don't have laws in place to protect us. We don't have teaching that's happening. I've got two young girls and as they get older, they're starting to use social media. So I'm taking a more active role in having conversations with them about what's real and what's not and what's safe and what's not. But that's something I only know to do because I have been in this business and observing this industry for over a decade. Most people don't have that background in that context. So our schools and our parents and our leaders, society as a whole needs to become more aware that these are problems caused by the technology. Well, it's, it's interesting that you mention it. So 
if you could give like a couple of basic rules that you laid out for your daughters concerning social media. So what are some of the, the basic foundation rules that you, you put down for them when they interact on, on social? Yeah. So for starters, they weren't allowed to use social media, any kind of true social media where you can connect with other people and have conversations until 10 or 11. So I have two girls. My youngest is eight. She's turning nine this fall, and she is not on any kind of true social media yet. She is able to watch videos on YouTube, their kids platform. So that's kind of the first thing I would look for as a, as a parent. If you want to allow your children to use a social network like YouTube or Instagram or Facebook or TikTok, see if there is a child version available. And I can tell you which ones are and are not because in six months that that, that will change, literally. It changes uh, every but, time. But look for that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Instagram had a version and then they took it away. Then they're bringing it back. You know, so just look for some kind of version. Now, Instagram specifically, and I'm, I'm segueing to Instagram for a reason. My oldest, who is now 11, that's what she wanted to use was Instagram. And I did a lot of research as a parent. Even though I'm familiar with this industry, I still needed to go back and look. As of right now, this moment, what are my options as a parent with Instagram specifically? And I decided that I was comfortable with the limitations that the platform allowed me to put on her profile. I get to control who she can and cannot connect with. I get to monitor her conversations. I get to keep her account private so she's not getting connection requests from other people that we haven't already vetted that we don't know because unfortunately, there's a lot of sick people on social media. Facebook Messenger is the same way and I really liked that because as my youngest got older, she's now able to type, she's now able to read words and that sort of thing. So she can use Facebook Messenger with her friends at her dance studio and that sort of thing. And that's it. I have to approve her connections. So she's got instant messaging. And my oldest has very, very limited controlled social networking. And that's really the bottom line for me. The, the advice I'd give any parent is take the time to learn and be a parent, be observant of what your kids are doing and protect them. Essentially, it's extending the physical or the people they know into the digital, such as you say, like yeah. the, the messenger, your friends, your dance school, your uh, school. So th those networks evolve slowly over time. But then on the flip side, you also have on the influencer side in, in this instance, you have people that kind of suddenly fall into this role. Like it might not have been their intention to get such a huge following, but as they develop their, I'd say content, share stuff about their life on these platforms, people started to resonate and gravitate towards them and kind of start seeing them as a role model. So from, for someone who isn't intentionally an influencer in, in the sense that we're talking like professionally, but kind of do have that impact on other people, how should they think about the use of the social media platforms and how they influence others? That's a great question. These are the people that I actually work with and really, really love to help and coach and guide. People who have developed, like you said, a social media audience. They're talking to that audience about a certain set of topics and they want to know how to take it further as an influencer. But even before they get to that point, I think it's important to note that everybody's an influencer. 
to a certain extent. Maybe you don't intend to be an influencer, but if you have people who are connected with you in real life, on social media, wherever the case might be, and you give them recommendations, you give them ideas, you give them suggestions, you're influencing them. Your neighbor who comes to you and says, hey, I'm you know, going to San Diego next month. Where should I go to eat? They're asking for a word of mouth recommendation, which is influence. But if we've developed any kind of a following on social media, beyond just that network of people that we personally knew that maybe we went to high school with, right? If people are starting to follow us because of what we're saying, then the first thing we need to be aware of is the fact that our words have weight, our words have authority with absolute power. You know, there's that phrase, right? We got to be careful that we're not persuading people to do things unintentionally. So you need to think about what you're going to post. And then the next step that you kind of inferred is, well, you know, what if they want to actually be influencer. You know, maybe they, that wasn't their plan going into it, but now they realize they look down one day and they realize they've got 4,000 followers on Instagram because they've been talking about, you know, men's shoes and men's fashion for long enough that people have really started to pay attention, which is cool. Now what do they do, right? Well, they need to think about who they're really trying to serve, who they're trying to help and make sure that there's a difference between who they're trying to help and how they're getting paid. Because with influencer marketing, most of the payment, most of the income will come from other businesses that want to be introduced to your target audience. So I'll say so, that a different so way. So basically it becomes work, right? In the end, What's it, that? It, basically it becomes work. Yes. Like, yes. It, in the end, it becomes work. And I, I think it can one still of the, be fun, but it, it should be yeah. considered a business. It's, yeah. it's a business. So one of the things that I find more the most interesting when you talk about influencers and ambassadors is that the importance between the match, the, the importance of the match between the influencer and the company. Like in many cases, especially in the, in the beginning stages, it's like, okay, we need to use the influencer because it's hot. Okay, this person has that many followers and then they, they strike the connection and they pay the influencer without ever doing the research if the target audience is the same or whether or not that person we had situations where we connected clients of ours with influencers and the influencers would use the competitor the competitor's brand we would be like this doesn't work like and i know you spend a lot of time explaining this this to people so what's what what's the most common reason that you find that people just jump into it but don't consider the importance of the match between the influencer and the brand. Yeah, aside from just not knowing what to do right, which is fine, the, the biggest issue typically is time. They're in a rush. They don't want to spend a lot of time. But unfortunately, if you want to do influencer marketing correctly, time is the thing that you absolutely must have. You need time up front to research influencers. You need to take the time then to develop a relationship with them and explore and observe and vet their audience. Because like you said, you could find an influencer with a million followers and you can pay them to send a tweet. But if their followers aren't the kind of people that you wanna to talk to that might actually be interested in your brand, you're just wasting your money. You might as well just put it in a dumpster, set it on fire and post that video to Twitter because you'll get more interest. Then beyond that, the actual work with the influencer, that takes time. 
Again, sending one tweet, even if it's to your target audience. What is the half-life of a tweet today? 18 minutes, which means after an hour, the odds of anybody actually seeing that tweet are next to nothing. But what we really want to do is reach that audience. So to do that, you need to create content over time, multiple social posts, several videos, a blog post, maybe an email. You know, it all depends on what that influencer tends to do and how their audience tends to consume their content. But it has to be protracted over time so that there's both the opportunity to reach more people and that necessary thing, which is repetition. And this is just pure marketing 101. We know from marketing that in order for somebody to eventually decide to buy from our brand, we need to have touched that person seven to 14 times. The people I'm talking to today, if I'm a automotive garage and I'm doing an ad for my automotive garage, everybody listening to my ad today isn't in the need right at this moment to take their car in to get it fixed. That'll happen tomorrow, next week, next month. And the only way that they're going to remember my brand is if they've heard my brand and they've got a relationship with my brand, even if it's just top of mind brand awareness. If they know even more, then that strengthens that relationship, right? So pure advertising just hits that top brand awareness, right? If you do a radio ad and you have it on repeat enough, great. I, that jingle stuck in my mind and I will know that dude's, you know, garage. But what if I worked with several local influencers who took their cars into that garage and they had a party at the garage, they created some content, they had a great experience, and they're talking about their experience with the garage on all of their social channels and they're having conversations and chatting back and forth over the course of several weeks. If I see that as a consumer, I'm seeing these people that, remember our earlier conversation, I know them, I like them, they're influencers that I follow, right? I feel like we're friends, even though we maybe not be but I know, like, and trust these individuals. And I'm gonna pay far more attention to them than the 30-second spot on the radio. And so with influencer marketing done well, it has a much greater opportunity to actually impact the people we're trying to reach in a way that when they finally do need our services, we're the brand they're gonna remember. So you just mentioned one time and that repetition is very important. So to come back to this relationship between the business, the brand, and the influencer, how much, I'd say, come from the, the company, the brand, and the influencer to, I'd say, elaborate on that trajectory to get that repetition? Like, how much control does the brand have or should the influencer have to stay authentic to their audience? The influencer should have a lot of control. And this is a great question because a lot of people don't realize this. As a brand, if I'm wanting to work with you, Diego, as an influencer, I should approach you <clears throat> and say, look, we've got a product launch coming up and it's about X, Y, and Z. And these are the people we're trying to reach. You know, how can we work with you? And it should be incumbent on you as the influencer to take a quick look at my brand come up with just a superficial understanding of who I am, what it is that I'm actually solving for and who I'm trying to talk to, make the connection between your existing audience and give me a proposal that plays to your strengths that will allow us to reach your audience in the best possible way. Now, as a good brand manager, I will have already done my homework and I will already understand 
that you're a podcaster and that you're creating content in some other ways and that you've got this community over here that looks like this. And so I should have a somewhat loose understanding of what our relationship is going to look like before I go into that point. And that's to assume also that we're coming into this cold where I'm a brand, I have a product launched next month, and I need an influencer or a core of influencers today. That is not the approach I recommend. I recommend brands start building their relationships with influencers today and then talk to them six months from now when they actually need to do the campaign. It's much more organic and, and constructive at that point because the problem with the first situation where, Diego, I just pick up the phone and I call you or I send you an email and it's very cold, right? There's no relationship there. You don't even know if you're going to get the gig. I don't even know if you're a great fit for us yet because it's such a cold environment at that point. And there's a lot of challenges and risks inherent in that approach. So I try to avoid it if possible, but it's not always possible. I get it. Again, sometimes, you know, in today's environment in particular, every SaaS company in the world is trying to figure out how to integrate ChatGPT, right? We're all trying to figure out how can we add with AI to the end of our logo and sell more product, whatever that product yeah. is. So at some point every day this year, some product has a product launch that wasn't on their roadmap last year. And so I get a lot of brands are, are scrambling. A lot of product marketing teams are scrambling today to figure out how do we get this out there? Who do we tap? Who's in our space that's talking about are kinds of things, but they're also talking about AI. They probably don't have those relationships in place. So they, they've got to kind of rush into that execution phase, but that's not ideal. And if you're good, like if you really listen to what, what you just said, Mike, you would have a situation where influencers would come up to you and say like, Hey, I know you're working on this. Could you put me on the list? I want to promote it. That's in the end, the, the direction you want to go towards. And I think it's interesting that you mentioned like everybody is an influencer to a certain extent, of course. Often when we look at influencers, we often look at least like the mainstream, we look at the celebrities or people that have been on television, but more recently people that are on YouTube. So YouTubers are now really considered like the mainstream influence. How many writers are still in that phase? What does influencer marketing for, for writers and bloggers look like? Because it feels like it's, it's in a different space, even, even though it's not. Yeah. And they are facing some massive, massive challenges this year. Let's just be honest. AI and the ability to generate written content extremely fast, extremely easily is a huge hurdle to overcome because as a blogger, as someone who is writing for their living, whether it's on a blog, if it's, if it's long form social posts, if it's newsletters, that written content has to stand out more so than ever. ChatGPT is a fantastic tool. I use it all the time. But if I was using it to create long form written content, it would be very vanilla. It wouldn't sound like me. It wouldn't have my stories interjected into it. It wouldn't have my personality. It, 
it might not even be factually true, but that's a whole other issue. Let's just assume oh, that yes. we're creating I've, content that's trust factual. Me, I've had that fight with with Chad GPT for the last. Yeah, you know, we got we got to hope that you know someone's at least vetting the content that's coming out. But if you're relying on Chat GPT to just churn out your entire blog post or your entire newsletter or something like that, you're not going to be giving your audience any real reason to follow you, and that's inherently different from podcast or video, because at least as of this moment, it's a lot harder to generate a podcast or a video with AI. I know that's coming too. At some point, it'll be really hard to differentiate between all the different forms of content. And at that point, what we'll see, I think, is a much greater and even harder to imagine oversaturation of the market. I mean, our mutual friend Mark Schaefer has been talking about content shock for a long time. It's hard to imagine what the next level beyond content shock will be, content Armageddon, I don't know what to call it, what's worse than shock, but we're about to get there. I mean, folks, listen to me. We're about to get to the point where anybody can go to open AI and generate a 2,500-word blog article. And if you can do that for your business and you can do that day after day after day, how does your business's content differentiate itself from everybody else's? How is that different? How is that going to better you? So we're seeing brands struggle with this. We're seeing writers and bloggers struggle with this. We're seeing the search engines struggle with this, right? And I think that'll probably ultimately be what forces a change back into the direction where we came from, which is that if Google and other search engines are able to detect AI content and derank it, that's what will force businesses to not use it. You you mentioned something very interesting because I've been dabbling a bit, but I haven't realized the extent to which ChatGPT can optimize your website content for SEO. That's yeah. that's some scary stuff. That's some There's some really powerful fun things that I think are 100% legit that every business should be doing if they aren't doing, which is for instance, ask ChatGPT what are some topics that I should talk about if my audience is X, Y, and Z, and I'm this kind of a business, and whatever other parameters you want to put into that prompt, and ChatGPT will give you 10 fresh ideas for blog content. It's fantastic. Then you could take it a step further and say, great, thanks, ChatGPT. Write me an outline for that first article. And they'll say, these are the things you should do. Now, should you take it the next step and have ChatGPT write the entire article for you? No, don't do that. Don't do that. And I think, I think that's interesting. Because the further along you are, and the more articles you've written, you will take that outline and you will take bits out of it. Yeah, right. It, it won't, like, if you're a starting blogger, you most likely take as much of that outline as possible. But if you're a more advanced writer, you'll probably take, so, oh, hey, wait, that's a good thing. I, I thought of point two, three, four, five, but point seven. that's actually interesting. Let me include that. And that's already kind of like a, a different, and I think that's gonna, that's what happens most of the technology, technology advances. At a certain point, people are able to distinguish between somebody who kind of, yes, knows to use a tool well, or actually has the, the proper skill. And yeah. that's in a higher segment with the competitive companies. But in a lower segment with people that have no idea what it's about, they will get fooled 
federal defense side. Yeah, yeah. And I'll tell you, I mean, what ChatGPT is really good for is instead of going from short form ideas and posts and spitting out long form content, the opposite direction. Take a long form piece of content like the transcript for this recording, paste the entire thing into ChatGPT and say, give me a summary of that. Right. I did a survey of B2B influencers. It's going to come out soon. And I picked like 10 statistics I pulled out of this survey that I conducted. And I put those into ChatGPT and I said, give me a summary of these statistics. And it spit out a really lovely three paragraphs summarizing and just talking in a natural way about 10 statistics. It was very fascinating. And then I said, give me an outline for the report. And it grouped the statistics in very logical buckets to talk about like the, the profile of a B2B influencer, rates and brand deals, and preferred social media platforms and content types. Those are the buckets, I think. And I looked at them like, oh, that's perfect. That makes sense. And then to your point, there was a fourth one that I was like, no, we're not going to do that. So it still took a human to look at that and make a professional informed decision of what to use and what not to use. I have to agree with that. I, I've done that before, condensing long form content and spitting out summaries or takeaways and then, you know, critically assessing them like, is it really relevant or not? But just to get a quick Versailles overview of, all right, this is in this whole like 20 page report or something. And the way I see ChatGPT is like a companion, like Iron Man has his Jarvis, like, you know, do some of the <laughs> logistical stuff, you know, do the logistical stuff, get that out of the way to, to free your brain, your resources to be able to do more of the critical thinking, do more of the assessment, do more of the creative thinking. And as you mentioned, the creative ideas are, are a great way to start. And then comes the, the, the technical skill because in the end, ChatGPT, AI, machine learning is just another tool we've invented just as social media platforms has evolved over the year to be able to create and dish out content. And what I'm seeing is going to happen in the, in the next few months, maybe because the development of ChatGPT and AI uh, models has been astonishing is that these models are being trained to do certain styles, to do certain voices, to do certain tones. A few weeks ago, there was this clip going around with Joe Rogan, uh, Joe Rogan, Jordan Peterson style discussion, right? And once you've learned the craft of prompting, because I think this is going to be a very crucial skill, that prompting skill for social media creators, content creators, anyone who does something online, it's going to be a crucial skill to master over the next few years until it becomes obsolete again. So how do you see the skill of prompting and do you have any best practices that you found yet in using certain prompts to get the results that you want? Okay, well, let me start by saying I am not a prompt engineer. I don't even play a prompt engineer on, on television. So I am a amateur user uh, of these tools at best. And I, I thought it was funny because you mentioned Jasper, our friend, or you mentioned Jarvis. Well, our friends at conversion.ai had rebranded to Jasper because that is the kind of vision they wanted. And they got sued by Marvel and they had to change to 
from Jarvis to Jasper, because Marvel doesn't want anybody calling themselves Jarvis. And apparently they own the rights to that, or at least they have, you know, wealthy enough bank accounts to, to pay all the lawyers. So as far as prompting, I would say definitely tone of voice is important. That's something that should be considered. In fact, that's a feature that we just built into Agora Pulse. You can take a text for a social post, put it into Agora Pulse, and then there's an AI button that says, you know what, I want this to be witty, or I want this to be more professional. And it totally spins it. It adds, you know, hashtags. It's super cool. I love that use of AI to change the tone of what you want to say. But you got to be careful too, because you as a brand don't sound like Gary Vaynerchuk. So you shouldn't all of a sudden start creating social media content that has Gary Vaynerchuk's voice. I don't think that's a good idea. It doesn't make a lot of sense. You should have your own voice, your own brand, your own style. So there's, again, with every tool that we've talked about, right, there's that risk, that, that challenge, that as a society, we've got free access to the tool. We can do anything we want. Should we? Are we going to come across as authentic? Possibly not. Now, what's really interesting is that if you're able to develop, you could develop your own AI bot. And yeah, keep, it keep, keep it in-house. Make sure, because then it's your own data. The AI adapts to your own data, so the tone of voice will remain like the way you would normally write. So I think that would be an interesting... Now, I'm not technical enough to do that, but I do think it's an interesting use case. And yes, to be honest, this conversation, my next... I have my content day on Friday. I'm going to schedule at least 100 tweets into Agora Post on Friday. Yep. Definitely, because there's so much long content that's so useful that I've always looked at it like, how how am I condense this? And actually, that might actually be a good use. So if all of a sudden you see me <laughs> posting a little bit more frequently, then you know that I've I've hired an assistant, but in that <laughs> sense, an AI assistant. That's right. So so to transition a bit to Agora Pulse, because you briefly mentioned it already, you started off your career on a much different path. How did you, first of all, what was the major inspiration to, to start the, the, the blog? That was one of the things that at a certain point you decided, I'm going to start a blog. And how is blogging for you different from when you started social media? So. Interestingly, I started writing blog content at a previous, previous, previous business of mine where I was building websites for clients, old Drupal sites, because I was a masochist. And I used hold on, my hold on, blog. hold on, Drupal. Uh, are you? Drupal. Yeah. So, so we have a question. Drupal or Drupal or Yubla? That's that's the first question. Which is better, Drupal or Yubla? Back then, it was definitely Drupal. Today, I couldn't tell you. Okay. And Drupal or WordPress? Again, back then, see, when I started doing websites, that was 2007. And Drupal, as painful as it was, was <laughs> the most powerful CMS. I could do anything. I mean, the whitehouse.org was built on, on Drupal 15 years ago. Today, my sites are on WordPress because it is absolutely easy. I can do anything I want on, on WordPress. I would never do anything differently. Okay, so for, 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 for people that are fully WordPress, because WordPress is by far the easiest now, what is something you could do on Drupal that you can't do on WordPress? Like 
with, with it. Well, on Drupal, oh, I can roll my own modules easily. I could create functionality within the site. And so I'm trying to think of an example. I could build functionality into the website that didn't exist anywhere else. And I could do it relatively easily myself. I didn't have a team of developers or anything like that. I studied computer programming in college, so I know how to program, but it was basically using HTML and the tools built in within Drupal. Yeah. So for, for people that are less technical for on WordPress, WordPress is great. It's easy to use, but if you have a certain template or a certain team and you want to change something that isn't there, you're stuck. It's, it's not, unless you're a coder and you can't code yeah. it yourself, you're kind of stuck. It's like, this is the template. This is what you've got to work with. Whereas I think Drupal was great and compared to, compared to my, sorry, I can't get the word right, but making, compartmentalizing the, the like small parts of the websites that you can make different and say like, okay, it's got to be the same on every page, but this specifically on this page, I want it over there. And this is the function that I want it to have. Yeah. Yeah. There was a lot more fine grained control. So I can create super powerful, robust websites for my clients. And I was creating content on my blog that was designed to help them market their websites. I was talking about social media way back then. And two things happened. First of all, my clients never used these powerful, robust websites that I built for them, right? They, they could have been just online brochures and that would have been the same for them. The fact that I chose Drupal and I made them powerful, that was on me. They didn't appreciate or use them. So that was professionally disappointing. Plus, the blog content that I was writing about at that time was not helping me get website sales. I was blogging about social media, but I wanted to attract business owners. There was an audience disconnect. So that's when I decided in 2011 to launch the social media app because I really liked writing about social media and online marketing. And so I did that for years and I built an audience. I built a reputation as, as a blogger, as an expert in social media marketing. And that actually landed me two jobs. It landed me first a CMO of an online website building company, ironically. And then I transitioned out of that to Agora Pulse in 2018. I want to ask the question, what's the most few blog posts that you've ever written? Do you remember that? The, what's the blog post blog? that, that was the most oh, written? most viewed. Most yeah, most viewed. viewed oh, sorry. Most viewed. Yeah. Yeah, well, it, there's there's a couple of answers to that. The the one blog post that I've written that still gets views today, and so over time, it has accrued the most views, and it's the funniest thing. It's how to link to a Facebook post. To this day, people don't know how to find a link to a direct Facebook post, and so they're Googling it, they're getting their answer on my site, they're leaving, and then they're going to link to that Facebook post that they want to send their mom or, or whatever it is that they want to do. That gets hundreds of readers every single day. And it's, it's, it's shocking and it's baffling and it's disappointing to me because that does nothing for me other than drive traffic to my site. These people, they're not interested in me. They're not interested in the rest of my content. They're just Googling an answer and leaving. So that, that's that one. But I would say the post that was intentional and got the most views in a short amount of time was when I wrote about Vine closing down because Vine was that four second looping video social network that got purchased by Twitter and then shut down like a month later. And they just announced it. This was like October 
2016, maybe. And they just put up a one paragraph blog post. Hey, we're shutting Vine down and like within 30 days and you can download your videos if you want to, but you're stuck. So I wrote a blog post about that and that went viral. Like 35, 50,000 views overnight because people were freaking out and Vine's blog didn't say anything about it at all. So we talked about your history. We talked about the evolution of Mike over the, from Drupal to <laughs> WordPress sites to writing social media content and also at Agora Pulse. We talked about AI, ChatGPT a bit. And then now I want to take a look at the future. So how do you see, especially now with the rapid development of AI such as ChatGPT, uh, recently, NVIDIA announced the video option that tracks your eyes. So as you are mentioning about this true relationship, looking at the camera kind of simulates, although it's fake, simulates that emotion of creating that relationship. As we move further to the future, as it becomes more entangled into our day-to-day -day lives and this fantasy such as Mark Zuckerberg talks about the, with the new meta strategy about the metaverse and being immersed in it. How do you see all of this evolution with AI base tracking develop into creating true online personal relationships? Wow, that is a really, really robust question. Thank you, Diego. And, and I don't say that just to stall because there's, there's a lot that's going on. And there's a lot to unpack there. And I'll start off by saying, first of all, I am not a fan of the metaverse or anything re regarding that. And I don't say that from a personal perspective that I'm just not interested. It's more, I just don't see the value for businesses in creating a metaverse environment and, and gathering around a artificial ranch and having conversations with, with avatars instead of just going on video and having a real conversation with real people's faces or better yet, have that in-person experience at a ranch. So I don't see the metaverse having the kind of impact that a lot of people thought and maybe still think that it would have. I mean, you know, Mark Shepard's a great example. He obviously invested a lot in this idea. And we know, industry observers know, it is not taking off as fast as he would have liked. I would even go so far as to say, it's performing so poorly as an idea it's in danger of being abandoned as an idea. Meta as a company is poised to lay off another 1,000, 10,000 people this year. And you got to assume they're looking very, very closely at the metaverse and the AR, VR space and wondering, do we continue to invest and potentially lose billions of dollars in this space if mainstream normal people are not getting excited about the metaverse. And that's really the core of what I'm seeing. And this is true with every new technology. At the time of this recording, the big sweetheart on the internet right now is Blue Sky. And I see celebrities getting excited about Blue Sky. I see social media celebrities getting excited about Blue Sky. I don't see regular people being excited about yet another social network. And if you can't get mainstream individuals and mainstream media, truly mainstream media, excited about whatever it is that you're trying to do, it won't take off. Ideas have to gain traction. They have to gain momentum. 
to take off in order to become an idea that becomes an actual tangible business. That said, what everybody is talking about today is AI. So if I'm looking at these two ideas as, as different ideas and, and visions for the future, the metaverse and AR VR versus artificial intelligence and artificially created content, AI seems like an idea that it is actually starting to catch on, that normal people are talking about it, they're hearing about it, they're starting to envision ways they might actually use AI as we see AI being integrated more prominently. I mean, we've had AI integration in a lot of our tools for a while and people just didn't really think about it. But now that we know AI is coming to search engines and we're seeing that implementation where normal people can open up a web browser or open up their phone and ask a question in a very natural language kind of a way and get a natural language response rather than a list of 10 websites that may or may not have anything to do with what you asked, that's the kind of implementation that is going to be widespread and it's going to be a, like, how do I put it? It's going to make it so that individuals, regular people, see and embrace AI as a technology. So AI, to me then, is something that's going to be part of our daily lives. So then the deeper question from, from my perspective as a marketer, as an influencer, how does that change what I'm doing? How does that impact what I'm going to be doing tomorrow and in the future? So that's why I'm starting to spend a little more time learning about AI. It's the kind of advice I always give any kind of influencer or business. Pay attention to trends and pay attention to what's been trending for a while because you don't have time to learn about everything that's trending today. It's just not possible. You will lose focus on the things that really matter to your business. But if you're watching what's trending, your brain's capable of understanding and observing what's been trending for a while. It's the same advice I've been giving bloggers for years, which is to look at your Google Analytics every day and see what your top content was for the past day or week or month, however frequently you want to do it. Because if you do that, you will know what people are reading on your site that will inform you where you're getting traffic. And that'll also inform you where you aren't getting traffic. So it's the same way with trends. If we're watching as a business, AI is trending. We should be thinking about today as a business, as an influencer or a business owner, how can I use AI? How can that help me? How can that help my audience? How can my knowledge of AI and utilization of AI be turned or molded or transitioned in a way that could help my audience? I think that's a great way to put it. And I think you hit the nail there, that critical mass, that adoption. If we just look at the last six months of how many people it's been trending on Twitter, Facebook content without people even realizing it, schools, essays being written by AI to the average person, not even looking at, at it from a monetization perspective, but just getting something done. I think that is a great indication to see where that's going. And yeah, no one knows where the future is headed, of course, but we can get a high probability guess, a higher probability guess of placing your bets and those who start early get the benefit of, you know, leveraging, leveraging that, that skill, that time and getting ahead of the curve and developing some new paradigm or some 
Yeah, yeah. The cautionary tale here for influencers is to make sure that they're using AI to help them in their content creation, to help them reach their audience and build their community because they still have to differentiate themselves somehow if they want to continue to maintain that audience because they got to know, if you're an influencer listening to me right now, you need to understand that your audience is not secured for life. They can stop listening to you tomorrow. Platforms can go away tomorrow. Your influence is based on the relationship between your audience and you as an individual, as a person. And AI can't duplicate that. So don't rest on AI. Don't allow AI to recreate or generate everything that you're saying. Use it as a guide. Use it as inspiration. But make sure that you're investing yourself in everything that you're doing so that your community continues to be authentic tomorrow. Wow. I, I don't think I have anything to add to that. That's some great way to close off the segment and go towards the end of our episode for today. Mike, if people are listening to the rerun or watching live, how can they reach out to you if they're interested? So I am on all the social networks. So whatever your preferred social network is, feel free to follow me. I spend most of my time on LinkedIn and Twitter, Mike Alton, A-L-L-T-O-N. And you can find my content and all my information on my website at thesocialmediahat.com. Awesome. We'll add those links in the show notes. And to close us off, one final question. I see a stormtrooper hat in the background <laughs> there. Can yeah, you... we didn't touch upon the Star Wars, <laughs> but it's in every, like for people that don't know, if, if Mike's talking, there will be a Star Wars reference in the slides, hidden somewhere or sometimes. Somewhere, somewhere. <laughs> and this is a decision that I made almost 10 years ago when I was building up my reputation, building up my authority, building up my community on social media. I knew as we talked about earlier, you know, you got, there's some things you have to talk about personally. You want to make a personal connection but you shouldn't share everything. And I decided Star Wars was going to be that one thing that I talked about on a regular basis. So if you follow me on Twitter, you'll see me sharing quote graphics of a Star Wars theme for fun. It's something to be personally known for. Awesome. With that being said, Sean, Luke, everyone tuning in, this episode will be available on the website by the end of the month. Mike, again, appreciate you coming in here and influencing us about the influencer space and where the trends are going. And we certainly look forward to seeing more about you, hearing more about you, and maybe seeing you here again in Suriname for, I don't know, another conference or just on holiday. With that being said, I would love that. Thank you very much. (laughs) Yes, we're going to make sure that that Mike comes back to Suriname. We're definitely going to make sure of that. Like Diego already said, Thank you, Mike. Thank you for everybody who tuned in and watched or listened to the show. This was Social Confos. See you back next week, same place. Bye-bye.